empowerment. Sasha, I feel incredibly committed to empowering people to understand that they are capable of creating their own pathways to health. This is Dorota Sasha Pole, and you are listening to Beyond, a candid conversation with people who inspire me and intrigue me. Today we are going to talk about three elements of healing with Kim Allen. Kim is an international wilderness guide and educator, family nurse practitioner, certified emergency nurse, And today she specializes in integrative and functional medicine. She believes that our health and wellness interwine with nature and our environment and that healing the planet starts from one person at a time. Very cool. And we are going to have a very cool interview recorded on this sunny day in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Welcome, Kim. Thank you, Sasha. I'm really excited to be here. Me too. <laughs> Let's start from the first element, water. And we cannot survive without water. But in your experience as the wilderness expedition guide, water brought another meaning you. Thank you. So, Sasha, I spent probably 25 years working in the canyons, but primarily in the river canyons of southeastern Utah and Colorado. And the image that a desert river conjures up, where you have this arid environment, then in the middle, in this hidden in this canyon, you have this incredibly powerful river that started up, you know, the Green River up in Wyoming, the Colorado River up in Rocky Mountain National Park that come together as a confluence through the Canyonlands National Park and then continue on downstream through these incredible rapids of Cataract Canyon. And it's this life force that just comes together out of this arid desert. Symbolically and metaphorically, it creates a tremendous amount of energy, hopefulness, and a sensation of life that we keep moving downwards, we keep moving downriver to meet our ocean, and then it recycles back again. It's an incredible sense of comfort, but also when you get to the rapids, there's some fear as well. So I found it to be very life-sustaining and kept me in a place that kept me very grounded because you can't just float through the easy water and then get to the rapids and expect that oh the river will take care of you no the responsibility for us to be able to know our environment to know what that rapid is going to bring how to read that rapid and then make our plans and go forth into that rapid and if our first plan doesn't work well then go to plan b And it's very 
um, I don't know how to describe it, but incredibly satisfying to be able to work, to move with the river in such a way that we're never, ever going to overpower the river. It's always stronger than us. But how can we move and dance within that and then come out on the other end? What kind of expeditions did you lead and what was the purpose? Most of the expeditions were with the Colorado Outward Bound School. And as mentioned, most of the expeditions were the desert river canyons in southeastern Utah. There were some mountaineering courses in Colorado and then expeditions in the Baja Peninsula down the Sea of Cortez in sea kayaks, as well as over on the Pacific side of the Baja Peninsula. The purpose, working with Outward Bound, the purpose were to bring people together of all ages, whether they were 14-year-olds, my oldest student was 72, and to work together as a group and to collaborate, moving through an expedition understanding that we are strongest when we work collaboratively as a group and independently to learn those leadership skills, to learn how to be a good follower and to get to where we need to go successfully. Did you have your favorite place? Oh, great question. Um, so depending on the environment, my favorite place for the desert environment, we, I ran a, a course called the 21-day multi-element course where we started out of Moab, Utah, and we hiked to the top of the LaSalle's to Tukanikabats. And then from Tukanikabats, you could look west and you could see the canyons and you could all you could see is this sort of repose of flat with you know, the assumption that the canyons were tucked down and you couldn't quite see to the bottom. And we would take our students from the top of Tukanikabats and we'd hike back down and we'd go from a mountain terrain and transition zone down into the desert, down into the canyons like a, a water droplet and follow the canyons all the way down to the mouth of the canyon to the Colorado River where we would meet up with another instructor who brought down some rafts. We'd take our backpacks and stash everything into our dry bags, get into the rafts, and with a paddle, we would paddle downstream to the confluence of the Green and the Colorado. And then two miles down below is a place called Spanish Bottom. And we would hike from Spanish Bottom up to the doll's house. And I'd always have my students stay very focused as we walked up to the doll's house. We're walking up about a thousand feet in one mile, a mile and a half. And I'd have them looking forward we'd get to the very top of the doll's house, which are these wonderful sandstone figurines. And I'd say to everybody, okay, I want everybody to sit down on this beautiful sandstone flat terrace. And now I want you to turn around and look east. And all the students would turn around and what they saw was the LaSalle Mountains way off into the distance eastward. And I'd say to every student, you all just walked or paddled from the top of those mountains to where you are. And that sense of illumination within these students, again, all ages of, oh my gosh, I can go on my own, walking, hiking, and with a paddle, tremendous distance. You could see their eyes open up and their little spirits of, 
I can do anything that I put my mind to. That was my absolute favorite moment. How can we take a wilderness experience and use it in everyday life? How can we take a wilderness experience and use it in everyday life? Wilderness is its place, obviously, but that place of wilderness that lies within us, that sense of curiosity, what is that wild place that we have that we're very curious about, that maybe we're a little bit fearful about? So take that sense of curiosity, that sense of wild that we have, and just take a little tiny corner and explore it. You don't have to go into the depths, right? Maybe some people can do that comfortably. But find that wild place. And even if it's in your own neighborhood, or maybe it is on a trail in the mountains, wherever that is for you, and then take that experience. And then how does that experience then transition, exploring that wild place in you, and then transition to our everyday lives, our family, our work, our relationships, and consciously make that transition, that transference. I'm wondering, were you born with with love for nature, or this came later in life? I think intuitively, now this is very anecdotal, that we're all born with a love for nature. It depends on, you know, if we're brought up in a city, we don't have much exposure. But I think intuitively we're drawn to the plants in the city. And sometimes, unfortunately, we grow out of it because we don't have those opportunities. So nature, you know, there's been some excellent studies that show that the more time children spend in nature, Richard Liu wrote a book many of you are familiar with, The Last Child, in the wild, that when we spend more time in a nature environment, then we have a greater sense of stewardship for the environment that we live. I love what you said, we are all born with love for nature. The second element, air. As a flying nurse, you flew to emergency cases. Being in the air and looking down to earth brings another life perspective, especially when you are descending to the accident scene. Kim, how do you compose yourself in time of extreme mental pressure? The composure, and again, many in your audience know this, that we have the ability to be in the fight or flight sympathetic tone or that rest and digest parasympathetic tone. So when one learns skills, you know, to be able to do CPR, to be able to treat with medications, to start IVs, know how to do extrication, there's a logistical sequence that we're all trained in. Many of you know your CPR. And so that helps to create a very solid, strong foundation. And then the actual mental piece, when we're flying in a helicopter down into a scene, very, it's great. We can look from up above down into the scene, provided that it's daylight and not nighttime. And we can, we call, survey the scene, get a sense of everything that's going on, a holistic view. And then as we land, you know, our communication is with EMS or, or 
police, whoever's there first, and take a deep breath. Because we don't want to get stuck in that tunnel vision of sympathetic, yet we also want to be able to perform the life-saving techniques that we're trained. So it's really learning how to take that deep breath and maintain that parasympathetic tone while being able to function with our life-saving skills. What kind of a new life perspective did you gain? Was there any scene that stuck in your mind? I think every scene call that we went to, because every person or people who were in that accident bring forth their own energy. So there isn't just one scene call that stands out. I mean, there's a couple of tragic ones, but that's those scenes stand out because of things I wish I had had a greater perspective. Um, and luckily, our team and the paramedics on the ground are, are my paramedic and the helicopter and the helicopter pilot we were able to you know stop, take a deep breath, and then look around and reassess. But in general, each patient brings their own energy. And I think for me to be able to tap into that patient's energy made every scene call very different um, and very, you know, stand out on its own, by its own source. What can you tell us about the teamwork? Uh, so many, in so many situations, people have a hard time to work with their colleagues How, how how can you make it work, especially in the time of the extreme stress? The teamwork piece of working on a helicopter is we all have very specific roles. And so in the helicopter, you have your pilot, you have your flight paramedic, and your flight nurse. And I worked as the flight nurse. As the pilot is flying into the scene, either the flight nurse or flight paramedic will be in the co-pilot seat and working with the pilot directly as well as the other team member in the back seat. And so we're looking for, as a team, do we see any power lines? Do we see anything that would keep us from being able to land? So there's a saying, three to go, one to say no. And what that means is all three team members have to agree that yes, this is a safe flight, that A, we can take off from our base, Or B, we can land, or mid-flight, no. One person says, I don't feel safe, we're going to turn around. So three to say go, one to say no. And that starts the teamwork. And also to recognize that, again, getting back to that outward bound model or even a military model, we are much stronger. We all bring our strengths and have a different view or perspective. What kind of mind do you have to have to become a flight nurse? Well, other than the skill sets that one has to have, the mindset, you know, again, for me, I can only speak personally, that mindset of really wanting to work together as a team and to value your teammates' experience and skills and to always keep an open dialogue. I liked to evaluate after we were done with the scene, maybe the next day, to evaluate with the pilot, with the paramedic, okay, what did we do really well? What could we have done differently? 
and just to keep that teamwork network um, open is an open process. Communication is a huge yes. aspect. It's time for a short break. We will be right back. goes so perfectly with your motto. Healing the planet starts from one person at a time. What do you mean by this? Well, as you talked about nature early on, you know, we have one planet and we as a human species, it's you know, part of our responsibility to be on this planet is to take care of it. It gives us so much and in return um, we want to be able to give back. So my personal belief is that if I can help one person, one patient, one client be the best they can be in wellness and health, and it doesn't matter to what degree that is, but as long as for that patient client, they feel that they are at their optimum energy, that again, that waxes and wanes, then I believe that sense of health and wellness extends beyond us both physically, which also includes energetically, emotionally, and spiritually, into the community around us, and then that also extends into the environment to which we live, whether that means recognizing they want to pick up some trash or they want to help their neighbor, whether they want to hold the door for somebody. But by creating wellness in one person opens up the space and energy to be able to help others and the environment around us. What took you to South Sudan, Kim? I was in South Sudan in a small little town called Yuba, which is just north of the border of the DRC, the Congo, with Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. It was a passion of mine to work with Doctors Without Borders for ever since I was a little girl. Um, and so that's where they had um, placed me. And uh, what was your biggest challenge at this time? Far away from home, a very different country and probably very different challenges from the ones you experienced in the wilderness. The mission that Doctors of the Borders in, in Yuba, we were there for trypanosomiasis, which is sleeping sickness. So we had a tiny little clinic and then we worked with the South Sudanese to go out into the small little villages and we would do take blood tests and if somebody came out positive with trypanosomiasis sleeping sickness they were brought back to our clinic and we were treated they were treated there um, either the first stage trypanosomiasis or the second stage um, the first stage they were given an injection once a day so they'd have to come back for seven days and then the second stage they stayed at our clinic we worked with the local Sudanese, um, there were medical assistants, there were nurses, and then our Doctors Without Borders compound was an international compound of, our physician was 
Chilean. We had another nurse from England. So we had this multi-global staff that was wonderful. So the biggest challenge was creating that sense of teamwork and collaboration. And I felt like my Outward Bound background really helped that a lot. And then another challenge was my role as one of the nurses, as a nurse at the time, was to educate the medical assistants and the nurses of Sudan. So when doctors left borders, when we were to leave, they could take over the program. And the challenge became, myself as a Westerner, how to teach a skill set that was very Western-based to a non-Western culture who was incredibly bright, yet my paradigm of teaching didn't necessarily apply. So that was an incredible fun challenge to create a teaching, experiential teaching model that was non-Western that could then be carried forth. Did anything shock you or brought an aha moment? Aha moment? I don't know if there were any specific aha moments other than just the honor it was to be able to work in southern Sudan with some incredibly talented people, uh, whether they were Sudanese or part of the international staff. It was just an incredible honor. What were your big lessons? The big lessons were more reminders. Um, I had spent time in India when I was 18. I had taken off after high school and jumped on a plane and found myself in India. And so those were tremendous lessons as an 18-year-old girl wandering around by herself. And so being back in Africa was another opportunity to be reminded of the world beyond the United States. And for yourself and for many of your listeners who know this really, really well, because you travel a lot, you're from another country, how important it is to keep that perspective and that sense of curiosity and openness that we're all one planet and we're all in this together. What else besides India did you go when you were a very young person? That particular trip started as the, or the typical you know, post-high school travel Europe of the URL pass and then moved from there, continued on to the Middle East. I lived on a Moshav and the Sinai, um, and wandered through the Sinai and, and Egypt, and then flew over to India and Nepal. Um, you know, then other travels I've taken since then, um, it was in French Polynesia for a while, but on uh, the island of Huahini and Rangiroa. Um, so little spot traveling, a fair amount in Mexico, and then as I mentioned, living in Baja and working. But not as much as I would love. To travel I more. think it has been quite a lot. What, uh, what was your perception of these places comparing to the States, a very modern country, very progressive? The first perspective, you know, being that 18-year-old for the first time out of the United States, and I think you and I had talked about this for the initial interview, was moving from the United States over to Europe, to the Middle East, India, and Nepal. If one were to put it on a growth line, a chronological growth line, I realized, you know, being over in the Middle East in particular, how young the United States is. It reminded me of the adolescents whose prefrontal cortex hadn't evolved yet. And then moving into Europe, 
more of an adult, the prefrontal cortex where they could make important decisions and could you know, intellectually understand and assimilate within context, not just use the brain stem that a lot of, I felt the United States, that reptilian brain, not to say that that's bad, just not quite as developed, and then moving from Europe, sort of that adult, into the Middle East, which felt like the grandparents who had wiser, you know, that wise old woman had a wise old woman, wise old man who's seen a lot, who's been through a lot. It's like, okay, we can do this, you know. Things may happen, but we've been there before. And then moving over to the to the east, India and Nepal, is that great, great, great grandparent who's really seen it all and a sense of, you know, take a deep breath. It's okay, we don't always have to move. So that sort of experiential timeline of, of growth. I love your analysis. Coming from Europe, I thought, oh yeah, that was a really old wisdom. And you enlightened me in this area. And when I look at this, yes, you are so very right. Today you are working on your PhD in mind-body medicine. You have created Nature Institute of Integrative and Functional Medicine. Kim, what is your approach to helping people to heal? Empowerment. Sasha, I feel incredibly committed to empowering people to understand that they are capable of creating their own pathways to health. And I'm here to support them, to give them resources. Uh, my training with the Institute for Functional Medicine in functional medicine is this wonderful systems biology, medical-based way of looking at health holistically from the cellular level, genetic level, cellular level, to the mind-body medicine piece of what we can do with our modifiable lifestyles, you know, our sleep patterns, our nutrition patterns, our stress patterns, that in small increments we can we can make changes in our health and particularly by spending time in nature because we think about you know yes mind body medicine we have to meditate we have to do things in a certain way you know take a yoga class but my focus with functional medicine is to bring nature nature's free we can all go and sit in the park for free now granted you know transportation to that park and there's some variables there but we can all go and walk in nature. Now, I also have to preface this. I live in Santa Fe where we're surrounded by nature. Somebody who's listening to this who lives in a city, you know, is there a park nearby? And so I understand those variables are different. But what I would like to create more of is a nature-based healthcare program that will help people in their path to wellness. How is mind-body medicine different from the Western medicine? Which Are they complementary? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Western medicine or conventional medicine tends to be very reductionist. However, we, we, we tend to think that reductionism is not a good thing. But if you, if you, let's just rephrase this, if somebody is in some kind of trauma 
they want to go to the emergency department. We want to be able to, you know, perform surgery, operating room. That piece is incredibly important. And emergency medicine and Western medicine, conventional medicine, is what we are the absolute best at. Unfortunately, the World Health Organization recently stated that the fourth leading cause of death globally is inactivity. So the United States, it's much higher than the fourth leading cause of death. It's probably three or four. Our level of inactivity, our nutritional status, our levels of stress, all creates this metabolic syndrome, which is this combination of diabetes type 2, obesity, etc., high blood pressure. We have no medicine to cure that. Absolutely none. And that metabolic syndrome, those diseases, whether they're one, one person suffers from one chronic disease or numerous, we can only give pills that will help to relieve the symptoms for a short period of time. We cannot cure it. It's really up to all of us as a culture, as a community, as individuals, to make those changes. And that's what I see myself doing with the Nature Institute of Integrative Functional Medicine is to help people make those individual changes. As they say, sample size of one, N of one. We're all very individual. I don't believe that there's a one-size-fits-all at all. We're all very individual in our needs and how we need to manage our health. What are your plans, Kim? My future plans are to graduate. Um, I should be able to defend my PhD dissertation um, next year, 2020. And then I want to be able to teach functional medicine with a nature-based approach. I want to be able to make functional medicine with a nature-based approach accessible to everybody. Unfortunately, right now, functional medicine providers, very few of them take insurance. It tends to be self-pay. And it's not available to people who don't have the income. So I want to be able to make that available, probably in a, in a group class, and share that information um, with patients and clients. But I also want to teach it at a university level to students so they can then carry that forward. How can we get in touch with you? I can be reached through the Nature Institute of Integrative and Functional Medicine.org. It's natureinstituteifm.org. And you can read more about what we do, and there's a, a contact link. And I'm going to provide all the links on my website. Kim, what are your top tips to better health we can incorporate today? right away after this interview. Take a deep breath. We have mitochondria that live within our little cells, and they are the ATP. They are the powerhouses. They need oxygen. They need that big, deep, full breath. Go stand next to a plant. Go look at some nature scenes and know that every time you spend time in nature or smell the beautiful aromas of a plant, those are actually increasing your immune system by building your natural natural killer cells, your NK cells. 
And then as we exhale, and we're inhaling all these beautiful aromas that are building our immune system. And as we exhale, that CO2, this is good CO2, it's not the CO2 that's over, overriding the environment. As we exhale that CO2, the plants around us are able to photosynthesize more. So there's this wonderful symbiotic and synergist, synergistic relationship. So that's what we can do. I have a few fun questions so we can get to know Kim even better. Kim, you are an athlete with the exclamation point. What are your favorite sports? My favorite sports, we talked about being on the river. I love being on the river. I love whitewater kayaking. Um, I love ocean kayaking and feeling the waves and the, the motion underneath my boat whether it's the ocean or the river. And then anything that gets me out in nature, whether I'm by myself or with a group of people. What does it mean to have an athlete mind? I think that is so different for everybody. You know, the competitive athlete who's always trying to perform at their best. I think as I've aged, I'm 56 now, as I've aged, that competitive edge to win or to be the best in something has mellowed to a place where I just want to maintain my health so that I can keep doing what I'm doing for as long as I can. How would you describe yourself in three words? Curious, loving, and compassionate. I would say powerful, very feminine, and smart. A woman of the 21st century. What is one thing most people do not know about you? That I'm more of an introvert than I let people know. That being in social arenas like at a party which I love I get really uncomfortable but I do love being in social venues what is your favorite quote I have a favorite oh, quote fantastic um, there's two and they're somewhat aligned the first one is by Albert Einstein the quote goes the problems we experience are not so much to do with who we are as to holding back who we really are. Mm. And then a more recent version of that by Marianne Williamson. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light Not our, not our darkness that most frightens us. For more inspiring episodes, please visit www.dorotasashabole.com Thank you, Kim. Thank you very much, Sasha. God bless. And thank you for listening. <laughs>